this podcast, including any related materials, such as show notes, links, and supportive materials, is provided by Metagenics Institute, the educational arm of Metagenics, Inc., for general informational and educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute medical advice and should not be considered a substitute for discussions between individuals and their healthcare providers. The podcast presenters' views are entirely their own and do not represent the views of Metagenics Institute, Metagenics, or any of their research partners and collaborators, collectively referred to as affiliates. Metagenics Institute and its affiliates do not endorse or recommend any specific healthcare providers, products, or other items or services that may be discussed or mentioned in this podcast. Podcast participants may receive compensation from Metagenics Institute and or its affiliates. Metagenics products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is actually from the Integrative Healthcare Symposium. It features Dr. Frank Lipman, a reluctant hero in the battle to bring new modalities into partnership with Western medicine using an evidence-based approach. I'm looking at this picture, I'm saying, wow, so obvious that Western medicine is wonderful at treating these crises care problems, acute emergencies, yes. and Chinese medicine is wonderful at these chronic problems, and it's obvious that the future of medicine is going to be the combination of the two. Yes. Discover the unique way that Dr. Lipman has merged the most subtle concepts of Chinese medicine with allopathic medical areas that are not commonly explored, but are recognized as valid. For so many years, I had been trying to understand Chinese medicine from a Western perspective. Um, and trying to articulate what is energy, you know, what is what are meridians. Now I think energy is just the mitochondrial function. Mm. And what are meridians? Those are just fascial planes. Join us on this episode of The Practice to explore how combining ancient and modern modalities, especially in the care of chronic conditions, offers a new hybrid path with a higher potential for health and happiness. I am so thrilled today to be with Dr. Frank Lipman. Frank, thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. We're here at the Integrative Health Symposium, which right. you began. You were part right. of the start of this amazing conference that's been going on for 15 plus years. I just want to say that we're filming with Dr. Lipman in New York. So if you hear some jackhammers, if you hear some alarms <laughs> going off, if you hear a fan going off, unfortunately, it's beyond our control. It's just part of filming in New York. Frank, thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. So I want to start first with your story, because I, I feel like it really speaks to the folks who are listening to us or watching us who are maybe still stuck in, um, you know, one foot in sort of a, a different paradigm for how to mm -hmm. practice medicine, but one foot still in maybe an insurance-based model, the traditional medicine model. So tell us about your story. Right. So I um, qualified a long time ago, 1979 in South Africa. And I got trained in the regular Western medical model. I got trained in crisis medicine. I got trained in the hospital. So I, I learned to treat heart attacks and acute pneumonias and broken bones. And in South Africa, it was really rough and tumble. So it was real crisis medicine. But I came out of that training and uh, I went to work in the bush and things were different. You know, this is Africa. 
people weren't coming in with uh, the same type of problems. Yes, they were coming with acute problems which we could help, but they were also coming in and they were tired. And, they, you know, these young guys in Africa, they were complaining they couldn't have sex 10 times a night. So there were, <laughs> there were these interesting problems that I didn't get trained in. And then after that, I went to work in a general practice in Johannesburg, in white middle class Johannesburg. And people were coming in and they were tired and they couldn't poop and they had headaches and they were stressed out. And I had no tools to help these people. Right. So my training was completely different. And I went to the doctor I was working with. I said, Paul, what the hell do I do? I'm not trained to treat these people. And he said, don't worry about it. Your job is just to be there and care for people and support them and hold them because people get better in spite of the medicine we give them. But I was lucky enough to that particular practice was the alternative practice in Johannesburg. And people were coming in and they'd seen an acupuncturist and they'd seen a homeopath and they'd seen different types of practitioners. And this was a while ago. This was 19, early 80s, 1980. So really ahead of its time yeah. in terms of the integrative model. Right. But I realized then that the patients were coming to me and they were saying, well, the acupuncturist helped me and the homeopath helped me. So I had this, you know, this thing in front of me saying, Wow, these people are being helped by by modalities that I thought were quackery. Mm -hmm. And then I emigrated to the United States and I had to do a residency in internal medicine. And once again, I said, put into a hospital situation and I saw the wonders of Western medicine, acute heart attacks and pneumonia and sepsis. And, you know, what we were doing was fantastic. Mm -hmm. But because I was disillusioned with Western medicine um, and I wanted to explore other modalities, uh, there happened to be an acupuncture clinic there. So I said, I'm going to check out the acupuncture clinic. So I started spending time at the acupuncture clinic and while I was at the hospital. And at the acupuncture clinic, people were coming in with the same problems I was seeing in South Africa. They couldn't poop and they were tired and they had irritable bowel and they had migraines. And I saw the acupuncture and Chinese medicine helping for these people. So. I'm looking at this picture, I'm saying, wow, so obvious that Western medicine is wonderful at treating these crisis care problems, acute emergencies. Yes. And Chinese medicine is wonderful at these chronic problems. The lifestyle problems. Yeah. And it's obvious that the future of medicine is going to be the combination of the two. Yes. So that's how that's and then it became a journey. And then I discovered Jeff Bland and functional medicine, which is really uh, articulating Chinese medicine from a Western perspective. Yes. So that's how it came about. But it's so obvious that good medicine is just a, a, a true a combination of using Western medicine where it's appropriate and these alternatives or these other modalities when they're appropriate. I love this. So amazing story about this gap that exists between sort of the Western medicine paradigm and what you're describing as good medicine. I love reading about your philosophy of good medicine. You've got three particular realms that you speak to with, with good medicine. Can you explain what you, what you mean by the philosophy of good medicine? Well, to me, good medicine is just using the appropriate medicine when needed. So I'm not attached to any model. If someone comes in with pneumonia or having acute chest pain, I'm not going to give them acupuncture, although I do acupuncture. If someone's coming and they're tired or they got uh, gut problems, which I know Western medicine can't help, I'll do something else. So I'm not attached to any particular model, whether it's Western medicine or functional medicine or call it what you like. So it's you're agnostic. Using, I'm totally agnostic. <laughs> I love this. I'm totally agnostic. <laughs> but 
I do think functional medicine has given me an operating system, a way of thinking, although that sort of came out of Chinese medicine. Chinese medicine gave me that too, and that fits in. For so many years, I had been trying to understand Chinese medicine from a Western perspective. Um, and trying to articulate what is energy, you know, what is what are meridians. Now I think energy is just the mitochondrial function, mm. and what are meridians? Those are just fascial planes. So what I did with my last book is I took uh, a mandala because I've been so influenced by Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism in particular. And I thought, well, you know, I meditate sometimes on mandalas. Why don't I create a system, the good medicine mandala, and put what I think are the big key issues into a mandala so people can, you know, a lot of it is how do you teach people to take care of themselves? Because ultimately you, the patient, are are your best doctor. So I put these six keys, these six rings into a mandala. And the six rings are the basic stuff, how to eat, how to sleep, how to move, not exercise, how to move, how to protect yourself from all the chemicals and toxins around, how to unwind or relax and how to connect. And connect is important because we, you know, these intangible aspects of, of human existence we ignore and they have a lot of healing effects. Absolutely. So connecting to oneself, connecting to our community, connecting to nature and the world in general. So I can uh, feel my social genomics changing just being right. around you. Look. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why, I mean, it's just trying to create a system f- so people can think differently because what I always say is the ordinary things we do on a daily basis have extraordinary healing effects. And we take it, you know, things we take for granted, like having gratitude, being kind to other people, having a pet maybe, um, sitting around table with your family, all these aspects, you know, listening to music, all these things we don't realize actually have some type of health benefits do. You know, it's not just drugs or surgery or even acupuncture or supplements. There's so many other aspects. Well, I love this perspective because I, you know, one of the things I found as I left the more traditional medicine world where I trained just like you described, I found that there were these silos. There's like the functional medicine silo. There's the precision medicine silo that's growing at academic medical centers. There's even personalized lifestyle medicine. There's integrative medicine. And so... I feel like if we're really going to transform our broken healthcare system, especially for chronic disease, we yeah. have to work together. So I like how good medicine breaks through that. Yeah, names are irrelevant. It's really just how do you help the patient take care of themselves and, and you basically guides. I mean, I'm, I'm more of a teacher and a guide. I see myself anyway more as a teacher or a guide than as a doctor per se. So how do I teach people to take care of themselves? I love that. I I think um, what we know is that when it comes to really changing the arc of your health and protecting your health, health defined in the broadest possible way, 99% is on the individual and their family and friends, their community. Only about 1% is that time with the doctor or the time with the healthcare professional. I want to talk about unwind because I I feel like this is, after 25 years of practicing medicine on my side, it's the thing that I talk about with my patients and you can sort of see their eyes glazing over. And yet I think in many ways it's the most important part of this process of cultivating health. 
So can you talk about how you discuss unwind with your patients and maybe how you approach it yourself? Right. Well, how I approach it myself is it's called survival. <laughs> um, you know, when you're in New York, you've got to deal with, you know, deal with, with all the stresses. So I meditate every morning. And what do you um, do? What's I want to get like really granular okay. here. So now, I mean, this has been evolving over years and years. I have a very, very busy mind. So I, I, initially, uh, I found it very difficult to meditate. So I got into listening to sounds. Um, I'm a big music fan. Then I got into yoga, which was really helpful. Then I started trying to do mindfulness, and it was all right. And uh, and I always used to knock TM or Vedic meditation, yes. sort of mantra meditation. I thought, uh, and uh, actually through my last book, uh, the writer happened to be a Vedic meditation teacher, and she hooked me up with a friend of hers who came and taught us in the office. And it's basically TM, but doesn't cost as much. <laughs> they come in, they give you a mantra. And you do your mantra, and I found that so easy. It's like meditation for idiots. Yes. So I do a mantra meditation almost every day. I wouldn't say every day, but I'd say 90% of the time, and it's changed everything. And it's made it so easy. So I'm all for any type of meditation, whatever you connect with. I do find the mantra meditation, for me anyway, very easy, because as your mind goes, you just go back to the mantra. But meditation... and probably one of the most important things I do for myself. Um, and we, you know, in my practice, we turn everyone on to meditation and, and we start them off on Headspace or Calm or one of the yes. apps because that's very easy. And then we try. It's like gateway meditation. Yeah, yeah it's great. Exactly. It's a gateway. And it's important. You know, we need these gateway drugs to get there. And when people can have that subjective sensation of relaxation, they go, aha. Um, but... I do find, you know, when people have sleep problems, and most people do, most of the time it's because they can't turn off their minds and exactly. they're stressed out. They have rumination, so, they have perseveration. Exactly. So meditation is really, really helpful for almost everyone. And it's free and you can do it anytime. It's like a no-brainer. But it all depends on who's sitting in front of you. But you said something really important, which I think is... For physicians, for healthcare professionals, we know that we're at a crisis in terms of burnout right. in the, on the yeah. Western side with traditional yeah. medicine. And you talked about, um, as you were describing your experience with meditation, that you have a busy mind. And I, I, in my experience with other physicians, especially medical doctors, I think most of us have a very busy, active yeah. mind. We have a very high negativity bias. It's part of what right. I think allows us to be successful as physicians. And we also know with the burnout crisis that one thing that works is meditation. So I feel like this is such an important way to begin the day. Yeah. And instead, what I see for a lot of my colleagues is that they get up in the morning, they check their iPhone or they check their emails and um, you know, pour a couple cup, cups of coffee because they're exhausted. They're not restored by their sleep. And I, I think if we could just shift that particular behavior toward meditation. Yep. Um, so you're using a form of TM right now. I learned TM when I was 17. I learned yoga from my great-grandmother when I was a small child. And I've also found that to be really helpful. But as you described, my practice has really changed over time. So can I get a little bit more specific? You get up in the morning. Yeah. 
And do you then go sit on a cushion? Like yes. what happens? Okay. So before I started meditating regularly, I used to get up in the morning and go straight onto the computer because I thought uh-huh. I had too much to do. Right. Because everything was, was a rush. I get up in the morning. I'm usually getting up 5 o'clock, 5.30. And the first thing I do, it's like it's a habit. I go downstairs and I sit on a chair. I don't sit on a cushion. I sit. I have my spot. My wife has her spot when we meditate together. I sit on the chair and I'll sit there for at least 20 minutes and I'll meditate. And it's it, it's just a practice. And meditation is a practice. You really have to do it regularly to feel the effects. And when I don't do it, I feel the difference. Yes. And patients pick it up as well. They say, oh, you're so relaxed. What's going on? So I find if you can do it the first thing yes. in the morning and so, so I know that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going onto the computer. I'm going straight to meditate. And it's it's life-changing. It and is it, life-changing. And, and, and it's not that difficult. I mean, I struggled for so long with meditation. And I thought, you know, I learned mindfulness. And I went to a meditation teacher who taught me to listen to the sound between your ears. which And I use all of them together. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, when my mind's going, I go back to the mantra. And your mind drifts. It's normal. You know, I don't get upset. You know, in, in the beginning when you're meditating, you say, oh, I can't switch off mind. I can't switch off mind. And you start getting pissed off with yourself. And now it's like your mind goes and then, ah, it's gone. Come back to the mantra. Mm-hmm. So if you make it a habit. Actually, if you make anything a habit, it just becomes easy. So that's the first thing I do almost every single morning. How long are you sitting in that chair? Well, I usually sit for at least 20 minutes. But what often happens is you get into such a lovely, peaceful state that you don't want to leave. So, you know, it depends on my timing. You know, I'll sit usually at least 20 minutes, but sometimes half an hour, sometimes 40 minutes. All depends. I hear the coherence, like that's, that lovely state is the reward that keeps the habit going. Yeah. So now with a patient, Yeah. tell us a little bit, especially with those patients that you have who have the the high negativity bias or who are saying, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. I can't meditate. I'm not going to yoga class. How do you deal with them? It's quite easy. You tell them that uh, you are an athlete for the mind. (laughs) Oh, this and is good. <laughs> if you want to stay on top of it, because especially in, in in the Wall Street world, there are a lot of people who are starting to meditate now. And I tell, especially as, as you get older, I explain to people, you're not on your game in the way you used to be in your 30s or even your 40s. And the only way you're going to stay mentally sharp is by meditating. So you sort of compare it to you, you being a mental athlete. You need to stay sharp. One way, and probably the best way to stay sharp, is to meditate. So I, I use that athlete metaphor and the fear of not being on top of your game. This is so good. It's always good to put a little bit of you know fear into people. To a little, like, you know, yeah, fear is a motivator. Bit. Yeah, just to motivate, just a little bit, but a little bit of fear, and then showing them well, there are ways to get around it. So another piece um, that I think is so important is that. For many of these symptoms that we see so commonly in our practice, like anxiety or insomnia or depression, you know, the the way I was taught in allopathic medicine is to prescribe a pharmaceutical, go through a differential diagnosis and prescribe a pharmaceutical. And yet 
the latest research is really showing us that we need to think more broadly. We need to think about inflammation in the body. Mm -hmm. Is it coming from, mm -hmm. say, the microbiome? Mm -hmm. Is it coming from yep. increased intestinal permeability? So can you speak to that? Because I, I feel like... Yep. That's such an important part, especially for folks who are transitioning to good medicine and are bringing more of it into their practice, to think beyond just a pill for every ill. Right. So what's interesting is in, in Chinese medicine, you learn that a symptom is some pointer to some underlying imbalance. So I've always felt and seen anxiety, depression, um, insomnia as some symptom pointing me to look for what the underlying imbalances are. I work a lot with the microbiome. I'm, you know, most of the time I'm starting with the gut. And what I, I've been noticing clinically, and, and as you pointing out, the new research is showing, oftentimes when you treat the gut, anxiety gets better, depression gets better, people start sleeping better. That's so really, really interesting. Um, and, you know, we, we now know the gut is called the second brain, so it's all connected. But um, I, I like to look at symptoms as some pointer to some underlying imbalance. But I do agree with you. I think a lot of times anxiety, depression, not always. I mean, those are, those are complicated issues. But a lot of the time when you treat the gut, these symptoms get better. Well, it's, it's a way of reducing the inflammatory load in yep. the body and to help Absolutely. resolve the inflammation. Yep. So one issue in particular I want to talk about is alcohol. So I'm thinking also about maybe these hedge fund managers who come to see you <laughs> and you've, you've got them convinced that they need to meditate. Maybe they're willing to do that. They want to become athletes of the mind. And yet um, they don't want to part with their fine wine that they're yeah. having every night. And I, I love how you describe, okay, let's, let's be objective and honest about what alcohol is doing. We know that we give it to animals to induce increased intestinal permeability. Mm -hmm. We know that it can disrupt the gut barrier. Mm -hmm. We know that it can change the microbiome. Mm -hmm. It kills brain cells. Mm -hmm. it, um, it also affects fat storage and fat burning in a way that I think you describe really beautifully, and yet I don't see enough documentation of that in the scientific literature. So can you speak a bit about alcohol and how you approach it, and how do you talk to your patients about it? Because I think in many ways the alcohol industry has convinced people that this is the way to unwind, Right. that yeah. you unwind at the end of the day with one or two or three glasses yeah. of fine wine. Yeah, I think we have a huge problem. I think to me alcohol is a toxin. You know, I'm pretty not radical, but almost radical about alcohol. I think the benefits of alcohol are more around the community and the social aspects of sitting around a table, taking three hours to eat with people who you love. Yes. To me, that's the benefit of alcohol. I don't see any benefit to alcohol. I've seen thousands and thousands of patients suffer the consequences of believing that alcohol is not particularly bad for them and it's actually good for them. So as you mentioned, drinking alcohol to relax or fall asleep is probably one of the worst things you can do. It backfires, right? Yeah, it robs you of the kind of yeah. deep sleep and REM yeah. sleep that you need. It raises cortisol the next day. Absolutely. And I, I, you know how many people I've seen over the years when we say, okay, just do it for two weeks and see how you feel. And people feel so much better. So I think alcohol is a huge problem. 
So let me highlight the two weeks because I think this is really important. I actually use that as a diagnostic test. So if I have a patient who can't give up alcohol for two weeks, I know that there's a sticky relationship there that we need to address. So I think that's a really helpful clinical pearl um, to use it as a diagnostic test, but speak more about how you use it. So the way I think is if you can get anyone to have a subjective experience of wellness or vitality, then you've got them hooked. So I learned that early on because I do acupuncture. So when you do acupuncture, someone feels better quickly and, uh, you know, they want more. You go to a yoga class or meditation, you feel better, so you want more. It's very hard to do that with Western, with medicine or nutrition because it takes a little bit of time. Yes. So what I do with my patients, I, you know, because it usually takes a good week or 10 days two weeks ideally, but at least a week where if you change someone's diet and you you make changes in the way they eat or what supplements they take, it's going to take a week, closer to two weeks, to really have them experience that vitality. So I say to them, listen, give me two weeks. If you do exactly what I say you should do for at least 10 days, preferably two weeks, and you don't feel better, you know, that's fine. But if you give me two weeks and you feel better, then you don't have to listen to me anymore. That'll be your carrot. My experience has been if people have to experience that vitality, it's not about listening to me or listening to whatever book they've read. It's about actually experiencing it. Yes, I totally agree. And I I find that this um, 14 days, particularly off of alcohol, it's so impactful, especially for women, because I think alcohol yeah, yeah. has an even uh, greater uh, yep. um, damaging effect on women. We know that there's a greater risk of breast cancer at a lower right. threshold of three servings of alcohol or more per week. And I just think that, especially with estrogen metabolism and the way that alcohol affects estrogen metabolism and the estrobilome in the gut, um, that there's more adverse effects. So. Let's talk about some of those other changes. I know we can't talk about all of them, but I, I know food is, um, is one of the places where you start. I love the way you talk about probiotic foods. In fact, I think you have a more complete way of talking about it than um, most of the other authors that I've read. Can you talk a little bit about probiotic foods and what you think is important, especially if you have a patient who says to you, you know, I have salmon and broccoli every day. I can't imagine adding sauerkraut or kimchi or any of these other things that I know are good for me. So why is it that we should um, have them try probiotic foods? What do they actually do in terms of gut function? And what data do we have? Uh, You're asking the wrong person about data because I don't really... (laughs) Okay, forget the data question. My data is my clinical experience. (laughs) Well, that's that's the data I want to hear. What I do find with probiotic foods, they can be tricky because I see so many people with microbiomes that are off, especially yeast overgrowth. Maybe it's something else, but what we call or perceive as as yeast overgrowth is probably more complicated. And when you give these people or recommend probiotic foods, and I actually see this as an indicator, they actually feel worse when you give them probiotics sometimes. So probiotics can be really tricky, and I understand um, more and more people saying, you know, I, I'm reading more and more papers saying, don't give probiotics. It's not don't give probiotics. Certain people, you don't give probiotics. It's not right for everyone. 
and probiotics are really a crapshoot because you don't know. Well, but we have to get smarter about it. Yeah, I think, we in just terms of targeting. Exactly, it's, it's it's very untargeted. I learned something very interesting from my Chinese medicine teacher many many years ago. He said to me, "What works for one person is is will really help them. For the next person, will do nothing, and for the third person, it does violence." And he used the word violence. So the idea of probiotic foods being wonderful for everyone is not true. I think if you can get most of these things through the food, it's great. Most cultures have some type of probiotic food, have, have some type of cultured food, but it's not right for everyone. Um, and, and I'm sure you see it as well. I see so many people whose guts are off or have some overgrowth of bad bacteria or yeast, and you give them probiotic foods and they feel terrible. Absolutely. They get so much gas. And so it's, it's a tricky thing. I, I think the gut, we, as you say, we're just learning about it. Um, what I often do is I use herbs, herb, you know, whether it's oregano oil or coconut oil extracts or berberine. I use mixed herbal formulas to try and kill the bad guys. I hate that because I don't think it's as simple as that. But I usually try to do that first and then reintroduce probiotic foods and or probiotics. That's great. I like that phase one, phase two. So as we start to wrap up, I want to hear about what's next for you. I want to probably write more, teach more. Um, I love seeing patients. I'm a terrible businessman. I just want to do what I do. Uh, and, you know, I love writing. I love teaching. I love turning lay people on, more so than doctors, onto health and inspiring and motivating them to take care of their own health and trying to get through to people that, you know, as I said earlier, it's those ordinary things we do daily, take them seriously. You know, whether it's sitting um, and meditating, whether it's going for a walk on the beach or, or in the forest, there's, there's so many aspects of health we don't understand. I mean, personally, you know, growing up in South Africa is lucky. Music was part of how I grew up. Music has been so healing for me. And mm. so we need to see a lot of these aspects of our lives in, in a way that they can act, actually help us or benefit our health or be detri detrimental to our health, the same thing. So I think we need to look at these simple things that we're doing all the time and how they can affect our health. It's not just um, things we can measure in the lab. I mean, that's important. Mm -hmm. I love all the new testing and I love what's going on in medicine. You know, what I find I can bring to the table is how do we bring a lot of this wisdom from these old cultures that have been around for centuries? How do we bring that into our way of living now? We got such a, we have such a yang society. We need a little, more, little bit more yin, and a lot of the yin comes from these aspects that we forget about. Beautiful. Okay, one last question. <laughs> the next book. Can you say anything about what that might be, or it, um, even if it's just early in its development? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm quite intrigued by sleep. Oh, good. I think sleep is... In Why? There. Why do you care about sleep? Because I know how it affects me. I know when I'm stressed out, I don't sleep properly. And then when I don't sleep properly, I see the consequences. And I see, I'd say 70, 60, 70, at least percent of people I see have sleep problems. And I, we, we, we don't take it seriously enough. Um, and, I, you know, the more I get into sleep, 
the more I realize how sophisticated our bodies are and so much is happening while we sleep. So I'm intrigued by sleep and, you know, being 64, I'm intrigued by aging too <laughs> and, and how you stay young. Or, you know, you know, I have a 30-year-old daughter who's probably going to have kids soon. So I'm, on a selfish level, interested in anti-aging as well. So... Those are the areas. Well, they go together, sleep yeah, and anti-aging. Exactly. So, I mean, those, that's sort of where I'm at. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Frank Lipman, for joining us today. It's a pleasure to talk with you. And thank you, Sarah, and thank you for all that you do. Thank you. Thank you for being with us for this episode of The Practice. You'll find extensive show notes, including links and supportive materials, over at thepracticepodcast.tv. While you're there, explore other topics and use the Ask and Answer button to ask your burning questions and give your insights about the topic. After all, the future of medicine lies in dialogue, not dogma. Let's transform medicine together by connecting on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You'll find all the links at thepracticepodcast.tv. This podcast, including any related materials such as show notes, links, and supportive materials, is provided by Metagenics Institute, the educational arm of Metagenics, Inc., for general informational and educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute medical advice and should not be considered a substitute for discussions between individuals and their healthcare providers. This podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship and should not be considered a substitute for the independent professional judgment of any physician or healthcare professional regarding the appropriate course of action for a particular patient or individual. Metagenics does not make any guarantees regarding the accuracy, completeness, or usefulness of this podcast for any particular purpose. Listeners may use this podcast at their own risk and patients should not disregard or delay seeking advice from their healthcare providers based on the content of this podcast. Participation through the Ask and Answer button is optional and no participant should feel obligated to provide personal details, including about any diagnosis, symptoms, or other health-related information. Neither Metagenics Institute nor any of its affiliates seek this information and it is not necessary to participate in the dialogue regarding this podcast. The podcast presenter's views are entirely their own and do not represent the views of Metagenics Institute, Metagenics, or any of its research partners and collaborators, collectively referred to as affiliates. Metagenics Institute and its affiliates do not endorse or recommend any specific healthcare providers, products, or other items or services that may be discussed or mentioned in this podcast. Podcast participants may receive compensation from Metagenics Institute and or its affiliates. Listening to this podcast does not obligate you to purchase, use, recommend, or prescribe any Metagenics or Metagenics Institute products or services, including their educational materials. Metagenics products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Unless approved by Metagenics Institute, this podcast must be used only for personal, non-commercial purposes. This podcast has no independent economic value and is intended to comply with all applicable laws. It may be rescinded, revoked, or amended at any time without notice. Listeners who are patients should talk to their healthcare providers if they have any questions regarding the content discussed in this podcast. Listeners who are healthcare professionals may obtain more information by visiting metagenicsinstitute.com, calling 888 690-8500 or emailing med ed at metagenicsinstitute.com.